Section two of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one, part two. Jean dismounted and led his horse down toward the camp, where he rather expected to see another and older Mexican, from whom he might get information. The lad walked with him. Down this way the plaintive uproar made by the sheep was not so loud. "'Hello there,' called Jean cheerfully as he approached the tent. No answer was forthcoming. Dropping his bridle, he went on, rather slowly, looking for someone to appear. Then a voice from one side startled him. "'Moanin', stranger!' A girl stepped out from beside a pine. She carried a rifle. Her face flashed richly brown, but she was not Mexican. This fact, and the sudden conviction that she had been watching him, somewhat disconcerted Jean. "'Beg pardon, miss,' he floundered. "'Didn't expect to see a girl. I'm sort of lost, looking for the rim, and thought I'd find a sheep herder who'd show me. I can't savvy this boy's lingo.' While he spoke, it seemed to him an intenseness of expression, a strain, relaxed from her face. A faint suggestion of hostility likewise disappeared. Jean was not sure that he had caught it, but there had been something that now was gone. "'Sure I'd be glad to show you,' she said. "'Thanks, miss. Reckon I can breathe easy now,' he replied. "'It's a long ride from San Diego, hot and dusty. I'm pretty tired.' and maybe this woods isn't good medicine to my aching eyes. San Diego, you from the coast? Yes. Jean had doffed his sombrero at the sight of her, and he still held it, rather deferentially, perhaps. It seemed to attract her attention. Put on your hat, stranger. Sure I can't recollect when any man bared his head to me. She uttered a little laugh, in which surprise and frankness mingled with a tint of bitterness. Jean sat down with his back to a pine, and, laying the sombrero by his side, he looked full at her, conscious of a singular eagerness, as if he wanted to verify by close scrutiny a first hasty impression. If there had been an instinct in his meeting with Coulter, there was more in this. The girl half sat, half leaned against a log, with a shiny little carbine across her knees. She had a level, curious gaze upon him, and Jean had never met one just like it. Her eyes were rather wide, oval in shape, clear and steady, with shadows of thought in their amber-brown depths. They seemed to look through Jean, and his gaze dropped first. Then it was he saw her ragged homespun skirt and a few inches of brown bare ankles strong and round, and crude worn-out moccasins that failed to hide the shapeliness of her feet. Suddenly she drew back her stockingless ankles and ill-shod little feet. When Jean lifted his gaze again, he found her face half-averted and a stain of red in the golden tan of her cheek. That touch of embarrassment somehow removed her from this strong, raw, wild woodland setting. It changed her poise. It detracted from the curious, unabashed, almost bold look that he had encountered in her eyes. "'Reckon you're from Texas,' said Jean presently. 
Sure am, she drawled. She had a lazy southern voice, pleasant to hear. How'd y'all guess that? Anybody can tell a Texan. Where I came from, there were a good many pioneers and ranchers from the old Lone Star State. I've worked for several. And, come to think of it, I'd rather hear a Texas girl talk than anybody. Do you know many Texas girls, she inquired, turning again to face him. Reckon I did. Quite a good many. Did you go with them? Go with them? Reckon you mean keep company. Why, yes, I guess I did a little, laughed Jean. Sometimes on a Sunday or a dance once in the blue moon, an occasional ride. Sure that accounts, said the girl wistfully. For what? asked Jean. You being a gentleman, she replied with force. Oh, I've not forgotten. I had friends when we lived in Texas three years ago. Sure it seems longer. Three miserable years in this damned country. Then she bit her lip, evidently to keep back further unwitting utterance to a total stranger. And it was that biting of her lip that drew Jean's attention to her mouth. It held beauty of curve and fullness and color that could not hide a certain sadness and bitterness. Then the whole flashing brown face changed for Jean. He saw that it was young, full of passion and restraint, possessing a power which grew on him. This, with her shame and pathos, and the fact that she craved respect, gave a leap to Jean's interest. "'Well, I reckon you flatter me,' he said, hoping to put her at ease again. "'I'm only a rough hunter and fisherman, woodchopper, and horse-tracker. Never had all the school I needed, nor near enough company of nice girls like you.' "'Am I nice?' she asked quickly. "'You sure are,' he replied, smiling. "'In these rags?' she demanded, with a sudden flash of passion that thrilled him. "'Look at the holes.' She showed rips in worn-out places in the sleeves of her buckskin blouse, through which gleamed a round, brown arm. I sew when I have anything to sew with. Look at my skirt, a dirty rag, and I have only one other to my name. Look. Again a color tinged her cheeks, most becoming, and giving the lie to her action. But shame could not check her violence now. A damned-up resentment seemed to have broken out in flood. She lifted the ragged skirt almost to her knees. No stockings, no shoes. How can a girl be nice when she has no clean, decent women's clothes to wear? How? How can a girl? began Jean. See here, miss. I'm begging your pardon for sort of stirring you to forget yourself a little. Reckon I understand. You don't meet many strangers and I sort of hit you wrong, making you feel too much and talk too much. Who and what you are is none of my business, but we met, and I reckon something has happened, perhaps more to me than to you. Now let me put you straight about clothes and women. Reckon I know most women love nice things to wear, and think because clothes make them look pretty that they're nicer or better, but they're wrong, you're wrong. Maybe it'd be too much for a girl like you to be happy without clothes, but you can be. You act just as nice and, and fine, and, for all you know, a good deal more appealing to some men. Stranger, you sure must excuse my temper and the show I made of myself, replied the girl with composure. 
That, to say the least, was not nice, and I don't want anyone thinking better of me than I deserve. My mother died in Texas, and I've lived out here in this wild country, a girl alone among rough men. Meeting you today makes me see what a hard lot they are and what it's done to me. Jean smothered his curiosity and tried to put out of his mind a growing sense that he pitied her, liked her. "'Are you a sheep herder?' he asked. "'Sure I am, now and then. My father lives back here in a canyon. He's a sheepman. Lately there's been herders shot at. Just now we're short and I have to fill in. But I like sheep herding, and I love the woods and the rimrock, and all the Tonto. If they were all, I'd sure be happy.' Herder shot at, exclaimed Jean thoughtfully. By whom? And what for? Trouble brewing between the cattlemen down in the basin and the sheepmen up on the rim. Dad says there'll sure be hell to pay. I tell him I hope the cattlemen chase him back to Texas. Then are you on the rancher's side? queried Jean, trying to pretend casual interest. No, I'll always be on my father's side, she replied with spirit but I'm bound to admit I think the cattlemen have the fair side of the argument. How so? Because there's grass everywhere. I see no sense in a sheepman going out of his way to surround a cattleman and sheep off his range. That started the row. Lord knows how it'll end. For most all of them here are from Texas. So I was told, replied Jean, and I heard most of all these Texans got run out of Texas. Any truth in that? Sure, I reckon there is, she replied seriously. But, stranger, it might not be healthy for you to say that anywhere. My dad, for one, was not run out of Texas. Sure, I never can see why he came here. He's accumulated stock, but he's not so rich nor so well off as he was back home. Are you going to stay here always? queried Jean suddenly. If I do, so it'll be my grave, she answered darkly. But what's the use of thinking? People stay places until they drift away. You can never tell. Well, stranger, this talk is keeping you. She seemed moody now, and a note of detachment crept into her voice. Jean rose at once and went for his horse. If this girl did not desire to talk further, he certainly had no wish to annoy her. His mule had strayed off among the bleeding sheep. Jean drove it back and then led his horse up to where the girl stood. She appeared taller and, though not of robust build, she was vigorous and lithe, with something about her that fitted the place. Jean was loath to bid her good-bye. Which way is the rim, he asked, turning to his saddle girths. South, she replied, pointing. It's only a mile or so. I'll walk down with you. Suppose you're on your way to Grass Valley? Yes, I've relatives there, he returned. He dreaded her next question, which he suspected would concern his name, but she did not ask. Taking up her rifle, she turned away. Jean strode ahead to her side. Reckon if you walk, I won't ride. So he found himself beside a girl, with the free step of a mountaineer. Her bare brown head came up nearly to his shoulder. It was a small, pretty head, graceful, well held, and the thick hair on it was shiny, soft brown. She wore it in a braid, 
rather untidily and tangled, he thought, and it was tied with a string of buckskin. Altogether her apparel proclaimed poverty. Jean let the conversation languish for a little. He wanted to think what to say presently, and then he felt a rather vague pleasure in stalking beside her. Her profile was straight-cut and exquisite in line. From this side view, the soft curve of her lips could not be seen. She made several attempts to start conversation, all of which Jean ignored, manifestly to her growing constraint. Presently, Jean, having decided what he wanted to say, suddenly began, I like this adventure. Do you? Adventure? Meeting me in the woods? And she laughed the laugh of youth. Sure you must be hard up for adventure, stranger. Do you like it? He persisted, and his eyes searched the half-averted face. I might like it, she answered frankly, if, if my temper had not made a fool of me. I never meet anyone I care to talk to. Why should it not be pleasant to run across someone new, someone strange in this here wild country? We are as we are, said Jean simply. I didn't think you made a fool of yourself. If I thought so, would I want to see you again? Do you? The brown face flashed on him with surprise, with a light he took for gladness. And because he wanted to appear calm and friendly, not too eager, he had to deny himself the thrill of meeting those changing eyes. Sure I do. Reckon I'm overbold on such short acquaintance, but I might not have another chance to tell you. So please don't hold it against me. This declaration over, Jean felt relief and something of exaltation. He had been afraid. He might not have the courage to make it. She walked on as before, only with her head bowed a little and her eyes downcast. No color, but the gold-brown tan and the blue tracery of veins showed in her cheeks. He noticed then a slight swelling quiver of her throat, and he became alive to its graceful contour and to how full and pulsating it was, how nobly it set into the curve of her shoulder. Here, in her quivering throat, was the weakness of her, the evidence of her sex, the womanliness that belied the mountaineer's stride and the strong grasp of brown hands on a rifle. It had an effect on Jean totally inexplicable to him, both in the strange warmth that stole over him and in the utterance he could not hold back. Girl, we're strangers. But what of that? We've met, and I tell you it means something to me. I've known girls for months and never felt this way. I don't know who you are. I don't care. You betrayed a good deal to me. You're not happy. You're lonely. And if I didn't want to see you again for my own sake, I would for yours. Some things you said I'll not forget soon. I've got a sister, and I know you have no brother, and I reckon. At this juncture, Jean, in his earnestness, and quite without thought, grasped her hand. The contact checked the flow of his speech and suddenly made him aghast at his temerity. But the girl did not make any effort to withdraw it. So Jean, inhaling a deep breath and trying to see through his bewilderment, held on bravely. He imagined he felt a faint warm, returning pressure. 
She was young. She was friendless. She was human. By this hand in his, Jean felt more than ever the loneliness of her. Then, just as he was about to speak again, she pulled her hand free. Here's the rim, she said, in her quaint southern draw, and there's your Tonto Basin. Jean had been intent only upon the girl. He had kept step beside her without taking note of what was ahead of him. At her words, he looked up expectantly to be struck mute. He felt a sheer force, a downward drawing of an immense abyss beneath him. As he looked afar, he saw a black basin of timbered country, the darkest and wildest he had ever gazed upon, a hundred miles of blue distance across to an unflung mountain range, hazy purple against the sky. It seemed to be a stupendous gulf, surrounded on three sides by bold, undulating lines of peaks, and on his side by a wall so high that he felt lifted aloft on the run of the sky. "'Southeast you see the Sierra Anchas,' said the girl, pointing. "'That notch in the range is the pass where sheep are driven to Phoenix and Maricopa. Those big rough mountains to the south are the Mazatals. Round to the west is the Four Peaks Range.' and you're standing on the rim. Jean could not see at first just what the rim was, but by shifting his gaze westward, he grasped this remarkable phenomenon of nature. For leagues and leagues, a colossal red and yellow wall, a rampart, a mountain-faced cliff, seemed to zigzag westward. Grand and bold were the promontories reaching out over the void. They ran toward the westering sun, Sweeping and impressive were the long lines slanting away from them, sloping darkly, spotted down, to merge into the black timber. Jean had never seen such a wild and rugged manifestation of nature's depths and upheavals. He was held mute. "'Stranger, look down,' said the girl. Jean's sight was educated to judge heights and depths and distances. This wall upon which he stood shared precipitously down, so far that it made him dizzy to look, and then the craggy broken cliffs merged into red-sided, cedar-greened slopes, running down and down in the gorges choked with forests, and from which soared up a roar of rushing waters. Slope after slope, ridge beyond ridge, canyon, merging into canyon, so the tremendous bowl sunk away to its black, deceiving depths, a wilderness across which travel seemed impossible. Wonderful, exclaimed Jean. Indeed it is, murmured the girl. Sure that is Arizona. I reckon I love this, the heights and depths, the awfulness of its wilderness. And you want to leave it? Yes and no. I don't deny the peace that comes to me here. But not often do I see the basin, and for that matter, one doesn't live on grand scenery. Child, even once in a while, this sight would cure any misery, if you only see. I'm glad I came. I'm glad you showed it to me first. She, too, seemed under the spell of a vastness and loneliness and beauty and grandeur that could not but strike the heart. Jean took her hand again. Girl... Say you will meet me here, he said, his voice ringing deep in his ears. 
Sure I will, she replied softly and turned to him. It seemed then that Jean saw her face for the first time. She was beautiful as he had never known beauty. Limbed against that scene, she gave it life, wild, sweet, young life, the poignant meaning of which haunted yet eluded him. But she belonged there. Her eyes were again searching his, as if for some lost part of herself, unrealized, never known before, wondering, wistful, hopeful, glad they were eyes that seemed surprised to reveal part of her soul. Then her red lips parted. Their tremulous movement was a magnet to Jean. An invisible and mighty force pulled him down to kiss them. Whatever the spell had been, that rude, unconscious action broke it. He jerked away, as if he expected to be struck. Girl, I, I, he gasped in amazed and sudden dawning contrition. I kissed you, but I swear it wasn't intentional. I never thought. The anger that Jean anticipated failed to materialize. He stood breathing hard, with a hand held out in unconscious appeal. By the same magic, perhaps, that had transfigured her a moment past, she was now invested again by the older character. Sure, I reckon my calling you a gentleman was a little previous, she said, with a rather dry bitterness. But, stranger, you're sudden. You're not insulted? asked Jean hurriedly. Oh, I've been kissed before. Sure, men are all alike. They're not, he replied hotly, with a sudden rush of disillusion, a dulling of enchantment. Don't you class me with other men who've kissed you? I wasn't myself when I did it, and I'd have gone on my knees to ask your forgiveness. But now I wouldn't, and I wouldn't kiss you again either, even if you, you wanted it. Jean read in her strange gaze what seemed to him a vague doubt, as if she was questioning him. Miss, I take that back, added Jean shortly. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude. It was a mean trick for me to kiss you, a girl alone in the woods, who's gone out of her way to be kind to me. I don't know why I forgot my manners, and I ask your pardon. She looked away then, and presently, pointed far out and down into the basin. There's Grass Valley, that long gray spot in the black. It's about fifteen miles. Right along the rim that way, till you cross the trail. Sure, you can't miss it. Then go down. I'm much obliged to you, replied Jean, reluctantly accepting what he regarded as his dismissal. Turning his horse, he put his foot in the stirrup, then, hesitating, looked across the saddle at the girl. Her abstraction, as she gazed away over the purple depths, suggested loneliness and wistfulness. She was not thinking of that scene spread so wondrously before her. It struck Jean that she might be pondering a subtle change in his feeling and attitude, something he was conscious of, yet could not define. "'Reckon this is good-bye,' he said, with hesitation." Adios, senor, she replied, facing him again. She lifted the little carbine to the hollow of her elbow and, half turning, appeared ready to depart. Adios means goodbye, he queried. Yes, goodbye till tomorrow, or goodbye forever. Take it as you like. 
Then you'll meet me here day after tomorrow? How eagerly he spoke on impulse, without consideration of the intangible thing that had changed him. Did I say I wouldn't? No, but I reckoned you'd not care to after, he replied, breaking off in some confusion. Sure, I'll be glad to meet you day after tomorrow about mid-afternoon, right here. Fetch all the news from Grass Valley. All right, thanks, that'll be fine, replies Jean, and as he spoke he experienced a buoyant thrill, a pleasant lightness of enthusiasm, such as always stirred boyishly in him at a prospect of adventure. Before it passed he wondered at it and felt unsure of himself. He needed to think. Stranger, sure I'm not recollectin' that you've told me who you are, she said. No, I reckon I didn't tell you, he returned. What difference does that make? I said, I didn't care who or what you are. Can't you feel the same about me? Sure, I felt that way, she replied, somewhat nonplussed, with the level brown gaze steadily on his face. But now you make me think. Let's meet without knowing any more about each other than we do now. Sure, I'd like that. In this big, wild Arizona, a girl, and I reckon a man, feel so insignificant. What's a name, anyhow? Still, people and things have to be distinguished. I'll call you a stranger and be satisfied, if you say it's fair for you, not to tell me who you are. Fair? No, it's not, declared Jean, forced to confession. My name is Jean, Jean Isbel. Isbel, she exclaimed with a violent start. Sure you can't be the son of old Gas Isbel. I've seen both his sons. He has three, replies Jean with relief. Now the secret was out. I'm the youngest. I'm twenty-four. Never been out of Oregon till now. On my way. The brown color slowly faded out of her face, leaving her quite pale, with eyes that began to blaze. The suppleness of her seemed to stiffen. My name's Ellen Jorth, she burst out passionately. Does it mean anything to you? Never heard it in my life, protested Jean. Sure, I reckon you belong to the sheep raisers who are on the outs with my father. That's why I had to tell you that I'm Jean Isbel. Ellen Jorth, it's strange and pretty. Reckon I can be just as good a friend to you. No, Isbel, can ever be a friend to me, she said, with bitter coldness. Stripped of her ease and her soft wistfulness, she stood before him one instant, entirely another girl, a hostile enemy. Then she wheeled and strolled off into the woods. Jean, in amaze, in consternation, watched her swiftly draw away with her lithe, free step, wanting to follow her, wanting to call her. But the resentment roused by her suddenly avowed hostility held him mute in his tracks. He watched her disappear, and when the brown and green wall of forest swallowed the slender gray form, he fought against the insistent desire to follow her, and fought in vain. End of chapter 1, part 2